How to Beat the Racists, a workers' liberty pamphlet, No Platform and Free Speech by Violet Martin. Our basic policy is free speech. The capitalist class has a partial interest in free speech within limits. The working class has a much more profound interest in free speech. Socialism means the defeat of entrenched power by the mobilisation of long downtrodden millions of people who at last dare to have thoughts and dreams other than those handed down by official society. Thus it needs free debate. And free speech, real free speech, not the limited free speech available in a society where a wealthy minority monopolises the media, education and leisure, is a vital part of the socialism we fight for. Of course, we know that history proceeds through class struggle. We are not pacifists, abstract idealists or dogmatists. The needs of the class struggle stand higher than any democratic principle. Moreover, there is no God, no umpire standing above us to impose democracy on the contending forces in the class war. But we are not short-sighted pragmatists either. Any political party at any time obviously appears likely to have short-term gain from suppressing and silencing those whose views it detests. Any but the most short-sighted or most determinedly totalitarian political party will, however, consider the danger in such action of isolating itself and turning the sympathy of democratically-minded but non-partisan people towards its opponent. Socialists will consider the additional danger of any short-term gains, compromising the long-term aims of working-class democracy. Bureaucratic and suppressive methods of maintaining left-wing control in trade unions have frequently undermined the strength of the union and sooner or later rebounded. In the student movement in the 1980s, no-platform policies against right-wingers paved the way for advocates of identity politics or demagogues to brand the left as racist, sexist and homophobic. Policies of no platform for fascists, racists or right-wingers of one sort or another spiralled into great confusion. The Easter 1986 conference of the National Union of Students saw one low point. One faction of leftists wanted, quote, no platform for Zionists, end quote. The conference enforced, quote, no platform for idiot anti-Zionists, end quote, by banning a badge which compared Zionism to fascism. Fascism is different. Fascism is different from other strands of right-wing politics in that it threatens immediately and physically the very existence of working-class organisation and, often, the lives of oppressed minorities. The basic Marxist policy against it is mass working-class mobilisation for socialism as the answer to the crisis of capitalism which breeds fascism and a workers' united front for physical self-defence. Trotsky argued against any support for bourgeois state bans on fascists on the grounds that they would be ineffective and inevitably, by increasing the repressive powers of the bourgeois state, facilitate blows against the workers. Nevertheless, he argued for the fight against fascism to be carried out in a civil war spirit, with no tenderness for any democratic right of the fascists. Why does not that contradict our general position for free speech? In more or less normal bourgeois democratic politics, Working class socialists have a framework to operate, mostly through peaceful agitation. Even in the best bourgeois democracy, we usually need a constant struggle to stop our own democratic rights, even our formal rights being nibbled away. Short of civil war, which must of course be fought as civil war, we have no tactical interest in attacking the democratic rights of other forces within the bourgeois democracy, even those we abhor. 
Here and there, it may be possible to secure the suppression of right-wing forces when they are outside the currently dominant bourgeois consensus. Often, we will shed no tears. But to champion such suppression places on the shaky ground of demanding the silencing of those outside the bourgeois consensus when we, in fact, are outside that consensus ourselves. It will rebound on us just as soon as our voice becomes annoying or threatening enough for the capitalist class. The American Experience Unless free speech is free speech of idea for ideas that someone finds repulsive or offensive, it is not free speech and we need free speech. James P. Cannon explained this well in his pamphlet Socialism on Trial. The US Trotskyist movement, which he led, organised many big and militant demonstrations against fascists, but never under slogans like No Platform. In a country where civil liberties ideology was strong, so they argued, and anti-communism was at least as strong as anti-fascism, to be seen as going for the forcible suppression of the speeches and meetings of the far right could only isolate socialists, make them appear anti-democratic and open them to witch hunts. It was better and more effective to take a stand on the right to self-defence and to counter-demonstrate. In Minneapolis in the 1930s, they organised a workers' defence guard. It never said it wanted to stop the fascists meeting or marching, only that it wanted to defend the labour movement. But the fact of its existence led the local fascists, the Silver Shirts, to declare that they were afraid to meet or march in Minneapolis. No platform for racists. Violent racist groups should be fought according to the laws of war, even if they are not strictly fascists. However, the general slogan, no platform for racists, creates more problems than it solves. Racism is a widespread ideology. Any working class activist knows that you have to argue with racists, not just proclaim that they are beyond the pale. We should argue in such a way as to make clear that we do not see racism as a normal difference of opinion, and we supplement argument by actions and by support for various forms of autonomous black organisation. All, all that is different from no platform. So also is a rule in a trade union or other working class organisation barring racist or sexist comments in meetings different from no platform for racists or sexists. There must be a grey area between upholding standards of civilised behaviour inside the labour movement on the one hand and upholding the rights in wider society of speech and advocacy which the bourgeois consensus does not consider civilised. And a grey area too between general racist or other reactionary ideas at one end of the spectrum and direct incitement to violence at the other. Grey areas between different things do not mean that there is no difference between them. If we slip into advocating no platform for racists on the grounds that racist ideas are repulsive, offensive, lead ultimately to violence, etc., then why not no platform for sexists, no platform for Zionists, no platform for Arab chauvinists, no platform for Tories, no platform, um, no works by D.H. Lawrence in public libraries? Fascism is different from other strands of right-wing politics. It grows from the start by violent, unlawful attacks on its opponents and scapegoats. And its forces are irregular street fighting groups. They can be defeated by the working class movement, short of a full scale civil war against the state. The classic Marxist discussions are focused on defending working class buildings, meetings, demonstrations and newspapers against fascist bands. They relate to situations where the fascists are so strong that a slogan of, quote, no platform for fascists, end quote, is senseless. But their spirit is clearly not one of a purely defensive stance or waiting for the fascists to strike the first blow. Trotsky wrote about workers' defence guards going out to smash fascist meetings. Fascism is a movement of immediate civil war against the left, 
against those whom the fascists choose to scapegoat and against the working class and war must be fought as war. It does not follow that no platform is the best slogan to express that thought, still less that it is a principle. War knows tactics other than the offensive. There is no principle which says that socialists have to strive to break up every fascist meeting. Such a principle would just consume our energies in endless chasing after right-wing cranks and in ill-chosen battles with the police. Tactically, it would also put us in a position where we seem not to be striking blows in a war for democratic rights against the fascists, but to be starting our own war against democratic rights. The French left. In France in 1973, one of the biggest revolutionary socialist groups, the Ligue Communiste Revolutionnaire, LCR, mobilised many thousands of people to try to stop a meeting of a fascist fringe group in Paris. The result was a very violent battle with thousands of police and the outlawing of the LCR. The LCR suffered a major setback and its later comments indicate that its leaders came to conclude that its tactics in 1973 had been foolish. Though brave, those tactics certainly did not stop the fascists. Until 1983, the fascists remained a more or less isolated minority, not particularly weaker than in 1973, but not particularly stronger either. Then, in 1983, they rapidly gained electoral strength on the back of mass disillusion with the Socialist Party, led government elected in 1981. The Front National, together with its recent split-off, the MNR, has retained about 10% of the move of the vote in France, sometimes more ever since then. For small left groups to attempt to no platform, the French fascists now exclude them from public life by sheer force of militant demonstrations is not feasible. More energetic no-platform tactics back in the 1970s, but how could they have been more energetic than the LCRs, would not have prevented the mass disillusion with the socialist-led, socialist party-led government. All that, could have been, all that could have made a difference was the building up of the working class left to a stature where it could more successfully appeal to the disillusioned. Self-defence is no offence. The best way to reason with the thug who comes after you with a knife or a broken bottle in his hands is, as Leon Trotsky once put it, to, quote, acquaint his head with the pavement, end quote. There is no guarantee that bouncing fascist heads off the pavement will make them see sense or turn them into decent human beings, but there is no other way to reason with them, and it is better for fascist heads to learn the hard, quote, lesson of the pavement, end quote, than that the heads of innocent black people, Jews or trade unionists should. The right to self-defence is basic. That means that we have the right to stop fascists from beating and killing by any means necessary. It also means that we have the right to go on the offensive to seek them out when that makes sense. Against this, the argument, quote, leave it to the police, end quote, is sheer nonsense. To put it at its weakest, the police are not reliable. It is a matter of fact that the police do not stop racist attacks, nor are they successful in catching those who carry out racist attacks. It is a simple matter of fact that there is widespread racism in the police force itself, virulent, active, persecuting racism. A large proportion of racist attacks on young black people are carried out by police officers who pick on them, harry them and beat them in the streets because they like picking on black people. Blair Peach, a white London school teacher, was killed on an anti-racist demonstration in 1979, not by a fascist, but by a policeman who hit him on the head with an illegally weighted truncheon. Though many serving police officers must know the identity of that murderer, he was never caught. 
The police also defend the racists and fascists. The police are no reliable defence against racists and fascists. In such conditions, what should anti-racists and the labour movement do? Ideally, we should set up trade union defence squads made up of both black and white anti-racists. Essentially, such defence squads would be flying pickets against racism. Such pickets, now outlawed by the Tories in industrial disputes, were a powerful weapon in the great strikes of the 1970s. That would be the answer to racism of a healthy labour movement determined to stop its enemies dividing it in order to rule it. The truth is that the labour movement lacks self-confidence now. We live in a country where the trade union movement is only half legal, hemmed around with anti-union laws which are the worst in Europe. That means that the socialist left should argue within the labour movement for such defence squads, patiently explaining why it is in the interest of white as well as black workers to smash the racists and to unite black and white workers against them. It means that practical, immediate defence work against racists and fascists in places like Oldham has to be the work of militants from those communities directly threatened by the fascists and of individual socialists and trade unionists. If black and Asian youth threatened by violent racists or fascists take action to defend themselves and their communities, they are right to do so. Self-defence is no offence. The greatest crime would be peacefully to let the fascists grow and develop. Lewisham, a turning point. On 13th of August 1977, the National Front tried to march through Lewisham in south-east London, where many black people live. The all-Lewisham campaign against racism and fascism, a local umbrella group for the various anti-fascist and anti-racist campaigns, organised a counter-demonstration. As 3,000 anti-fascists occupied Lewisham High Street and the areas surrounding it, the police appeared on the streets in full riot gear for the first time in post-war Britain. 4,000 policemen equipped with horses, batons, motor vehicles and helicopters only just managed to keep the National Front from being lynched. In the mid-1970s, fascist marches and left-wing counter-demonstrations were frequent occurrences. What was different in Lewisham was that local black youth, in large numbers and without any prior organisation, fought back against both the fascists and the police. Their hatred of the latter had been inflamed by the recent arrests of local black activists, the decision to let the NF march go ahead, and the way the march and counter-march had been handled. The fascists got the roughest ride they had had for a long time, so did the police. Hurling stones, bottles and smoke bombs, large numbers of black youth joined the left-wing forces trying to break the police lines behind which the fascists were marching. The NF was prevented from reaching Lewisham High Street, Police vehicles advancing on the anti-fascists were immobilised and smashed, and Ladywell Police Station was besieged for almost half an hour. The police found themselves under attack from the same young people they had been harassing and bullying on the streets of Lewisham for years. The Socialist Workers' Party and the Anti-Nazi League, which was then in the process of being formed, claimed credit for the Battle of Le for Lewisham. But that was nonsense. The Battle of Lewisham was won by local people coming out in solidarity with anti-fascist demonstrators and above all, by Lewisham's black youth. The Anti-Nazi League, The Poverty of Anti-Fascism, by Mark Osborne. Everybody knows that the Anti-Nazi League is run by the Socialist Workers' Party and entirely controlled by it. The ANL of the late 70s was also controlled by the SWP. Nevertheless, it was a much broader affair than the reborn post-1992 ANL. 
SWP control means that the ANL exists first to serve the SWP and act as a source of recruits. It exists secondly, a poor second sometimes, to fight racism and fascism. It will only fight racism and fascism in ways that do not cut across SWP plans. ANL anti-racist activity is conceived of exclusively as demonstrations and ritual confrontations, and not at all as an activity that also tries to rouse the labour movement to fight the conditions that breed racism. Using the broadest and vaguest idea of anti-racism, the SWP is willing to unite with Tory and Liberal politicians who make noise against Nazis, but will do nothing against the conditions in East London and Oldham, for example, which allow the Nazis to gain support. The poverty of ANL anti-fascism was underlined by the events of 1993-4 in Millwall, East London. In September 1993, the BMP fascist Derek Beacon won a council by-election in Millwall. The background was a terrible local housing shortage, which had been presided over by a right-wing Labour council and then a Liberal administration. Local white and black people felt let down by the mainstream parties, and some white workers had begun to look for a BMP racist solution, homes for whites at the expense of local Asian workers. The BMP was beaten in the Millwall Council election of 1994. Beacon was defeated despite increasing his vote. In the run-up to the election, most of the socialist left canvassed for Labour. The local ward party was left-led, and the Labour Party in Tower Hamlets ran on a special programme which promised the provision of 1,000 new homes. The ANL-SWP, however, simply said, don't vote Nazi, and they refused to canvass for Labour. This was particularly dangerous in an area where there were only three parties which could win the seat, the Liberals, Labour or the BNP. Don't vote Nazi meant the SWP didn't care if anti-Nazis voted Liberal or Labour. To make such an elementary mistake is to have failed to understand the basic socialist anti-fascist policy. We must mobilise the Labour movement to stop the Nazis and the 1994 Labour Party, based on the unions, was clearly to be supported against both the capitalist Liberal Democrats and the BMP. An anti-racist campaign organised like this can have only a very limited usefulness, except for the SWP. It can often play a very harmful role. The old 1970s ANL did a great deal of damage to black-white relations, precisely because its prime concern was not fighting racism and fascism, but building the SWP. It is a story that should not be forgotten. The ANL held very successful rock concerts to which tens of thousands of young people came. Such a concert was the big ANL event in October 1978. Back in 1978, the National Front, which was very powerful, announced that it would march on the Bengali community in Brick Lane in East London during the time set for the carnival. Despite appeals from many individuals and groups, including people living in the area where the fascists planned to march, the SWP ANL leaders refused to alter their plans. Their party in Brockwell Park was to go ahead, while across London the fascists would be left to confront the East End Asian community. The rock carnival with big-name bands would draw vast crowds of youth, potential SWPers. That was the name of the game for the SWP ANL leaders were playing. Defending Brick Lane could not be allowed to interfere with that. The Anti-Nazi League revealed itself as a campaign run by people not primarily concerned with its supposed goals at all, but with the hidden agenda of the SWP. The carnival went ahead and the fascists marched on Brick Lane to be met by local people and leftists called to the defence of Brick Lane, by socialist organiser, forerunner of workers' liberty and others.
Large numbers of black activists were thereby alienated from and poisoned against the white left by the SWP ANL's performance. The ANL went into a decline and was soon wound up. The SWP turned to something else. The new ANL, relaunched in the early 90s as an SWP party front organisation, should be trusted as far as those responsible for the grim fiasco of the old ANL deserve to be trusted. They are the same people.